Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis This is MJ Network MJ Network in memory of my sister Marcia Joyce And this is going to be really good Despite the nor'easter that's plaguing us outside, we're going to have some sunshine. A heart-stopping murder thriller starts with two murders and focuses on a very, very, very important issue that we need to really address today, the homeless population. This is one interview that everybody should be listening to, and we welcome C.L. Tobert, the author of The Redemption, and I'm so glad we finally got to do this. Yay! (laughs) I am too. Yay! Hi. How how are you? Oh, pity. <laughs> I'm not outside. I'm fine. Um, the summary of the plot, tell everybody what it's about. And I put it on Facebook that I'm on the air. So hopefully people will call in and listen. Great. Well, The Redemption is the second book in the Thornton Mystery Series. Emma Thornton is back. This time she's a professor at a law school in New Orleans. She agrees to take on the case of Lewis Bishop. He's a 16-year-old accused Mm. of a double murder in the Redemption Housing Project. Uh, All evidence points to Lewis, but he refuses to give specific evidence on the night of the the murder. He's a homeless homeless, um, Mm. 16-year-old. He's arrested the next day, and he's thrown into um, the Orleans Parish Prison. Emma Thornton is a law professor, and she's the director of the Homeless Law Clinic at St. Stanislaus Law School. She agrees to represent him. When they take on the case, Emma and her students discover a tangle of corruption, intrigue, and more Mm. violence than they could have thought possible, even in New Orleans. They uncover secrets about the night of the murders and illegal dealings in the city and within Lewis's family. As the case progresses, Emma and her family are thrown into a series of life-threatening situations. But in the end, Emma gains Lewis's trust and it allows him to reveal his last and most vital secret. Yeah, well, this this had an ending that no one's going to expect, that's for sure. I'll tell you that. It's like, oh, yeah. my God. I sort of figured it out. I go, but okay. So... This is this is a strange question. I ask questions that nobody else is going to think about. This book would be a great resource for beginning lawyers. I learned a lot about the legal system by reading what you wrote. So why did you include college students to help in various areas, and what exactly do they do? I think that's fantastic. And in real life, people should do that, really. Well, um, the uh, Emma is a um, clinical professor at a um, at a law school, and I was one as well. And in that mm. program, the um, students participate in actual cases. Mm. And so, yeah, so they sign up, and they actually do the research. They do legal research on cases. They write motions. They interview witnesses, and they participate in investigations. And they develop, you know, they help develop expert witnesses. They prepare for trial. And in some cases, they actually participate in trial. But in the redemption, uh, Emma didn't allow her students to, wasn't going to allow her students to participate in the case because Lewis's case may have been a capital um, case, Mm. and they couldn't participate in that trial. Um, But that's part of the program that the students actually learn about um, these cases by participating in them. So that's kind of the program. So um, this is a fictional university. St. Stanislaus University um, is a fictional mm. university in the book, but that's that's how they learn about these um, cases. They participate. Mm. This is fantastic. You know, I went for a long time ago, thank God I don't ever go again, for jury duty, and they 
by the time they finished questioning everybody and questioning me and telling me I couldn't do it on the jury because I was too smart and figured out something that they didn't want to figure out to start with, uh-huh. um, they said I they said I missed my calling. I said I was an educator and I was I was very happy teaching kids with learning disabilities. That was fun. I loved every minute of uh-huh. it. But there it was an accident case and there was a brother-in-law and sister-in-law and they said to the lawyer. Do they have something going together that they're going to both collect? And they didn't like that because I was right. <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yeah. Like yeah. So why did the DA push for the death penalty for poor Lewis or a poor guy? Yeah. Well, it seems mean. like a harsh. Well, unfortunately, in Louisiana and some other states, it seems to be politically popular um and um i based this this case on a real life case and it was just it was inspired it was it was inspired by a real life case Mm -hmm. and in the real life case um the the juvenile involved was a little bit younger than the um fictional case Mm -hmm. but in that case, the assistant DA wanted to push for the for the um, death penalty, and it was, a juvenile was involved. And I was shocked that they wanted to. But in, in the fictional case as well, they there was a Catholic brother involved, and um, it would have just been a sensational case to have pushed for the death penalty. It would have gotten a lot of press, and the DA would have gotten a lot of um, he would have gotten a lot of press from it, and so it would have, you know, would have made the papers. It would have, it would have um, gotten a lot of attention, and so you know, the death penalty is a popular sort of penalty in in Louisiana, believe it or not. So it would have, um, it would have been a popular case, and that's why they would have pressed, they would have pressed for it. So. I would imagine, and I imagine the media would have eaten it up like they eat up everything on the that's, news today that, that's rotten. That's exactly right. As sad as you it know, is. You should, you should hear the guys that were doing the weather. They were so excited that there was a Norisa. They look, I looked they were going to have a party. Really. They're so excited. That's, you've, got, you've got it. You've got it. You've got it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So tell yeah. us about Melissa, Josh, and Warren. They're interesting, especially one of them. Why did they volunteer to help with the case, and how did you create the different styles of questioning and dealing with witnesses? Because some of them were better than the other. They were interesting. Yeah, well, Melissa is a a brilliant young um, African-American woman who's um, from this this fabulous family. Her dad's the um, first African-American neurosurgeon in, in New Orleans, and she's you know, she's quick-witted, social, empathetic. She's got this high emotional IQ and high intellectual IQ, and she's just very empathetic and sympathetic. She's a great. She's going to be a great trial attorney, and she asks very insightful questions. Um, and Josh, so so all of her questions. I don't know. She's just she's just very. Um, I don't know, empathetic, and and she just yeah. gets to the heart of things. And Josh studied for the priesthood, but he but he quit when he met this woman that he loved, and and he's a philosophy major. He's thoughtful and thorough and contemplative and reliable. He'll be a great counselor, and he's just Mister, you know, Mister um, uh, Steady, Steady Eddie. And he's just always reliable. He's always there. He'll be a good counselor. And Lauren is is from an affluent family. She studied at Sarah Lawrence College. She um, chose to attend St. Stanislaus Law School because of her interest in international law. She's introverted, smart, elitist. Even though she'd deny it, she says she's liberal, but she harbors fears about people she doesn't know. She's uncomfortable around people of different backgrounds. She's intellectually broad-minded, but she can't seem to put her social beliefs into practice. So when she's confronted with witnesses from a different background, her fears show, and she mm-hmm. puts them off. She puts them off, and 
they're not comfortable around her. So she doesn't get from them what she could get from them. And she 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 puts she it backfires on her. And I I one of the quotes in the book, which is one of my favorite quotes, is intolerance has many faces and fear is one. And that 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 is very revealing about about mm-hmm. Lauren. She's um she has an intolerance about her that that reveals who she really is and she's a problem and, and ends up being a problem, you know, for uh Emma as a and I think, you know, as a lawyer she's gonna have problems too. Because I'm she's too rigid. Like that. I have no patience for people that have intolerance or prejudice or anything. Well, right. Always what up. Right. Everybody's the same. Nobody's better than anybody else, and everybody's equal. And you have to give somebody a chance before you dislike them. And my mother would look at somebody, and she had Alzheimer's, and she would look at them and say, "I don't like them." And she was right. It's scary. It's scary. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So who was yeah. Alicia, and what did they think that she knew about what happened to bro- uh, poor brother Antoine? And why was she meeting oh, him? I oh, I feel so bad. Oh, I like him. Yeah, well, Brother Antoine was wonderful, but Alicia was meeting Brother Antoine to because yeah. he was going to help her the night of the murder to to fill out her forms for the scholarship, and yeah. everyone everyone thought she knew something about the murder that night um, because she came out on the on the porch to walk him out um, to say good night. And so, you know, Emma thought she knew something. Marcus thought she knew something. I Everybody like Marcus. thought she knew something. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't exactly. So, so who is Sam, and why did Marcus, why did he threaten Sam? I wasn't well, sure about Sam. Sam. Sam bothered me, too, yeah. Sam was a, was a, a drug dealer who had, like, a three-block um, section in the uptown district, a, a little territory, and um, Marcus, of course, was um, Lewis's cousin, and um, so, you know, everyone thought the whole deal was about mm. Sam. The whole deal that night that went down that night was about um, um, Sam, but it was really. Um, not quite about that. I can't really reveal what it was about that night, but it was no, more about. No. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, but Sam, Sam was just he just had a small territory, and um, Marcus, of course, had everything else um, in the in the city. So he was the big drug. Marcus was the big drug dealer. Well, you know, it's funny. You know, you never know who's who's doing what. You could look at somebody and think that they're innocent or just a businessman. It could actually be a big drug deal. We had them outside my school, so it was easy to pick them out. Yeah, we were aware of what was going on. And unfortunately, they tried to sell it to the kids in the schoolyard, and um, we stopped oh. them. Yeah, they did. Oh. They, they don't well. care. And there was one kid that actually... He was really dangerous. His mother and father were afraid of him. I wasn't afraid of him, and for some reason, and he did. He sold on the street. You could tell by the sneakers and the jackets and the clothes he was wearing it was more expensive than mine. And the grandparents oh. used to lock him out. They were afraid of him. And yet, when I was in school, he would come to my car and he'd go, "Your mother's here. She's going to come pick you up. No problem." <laughs> was, I wasn't afraid of him for some reason, oh. but he was dangerous. So what does Emma why does Emma proceed with the case and what happens when she meets Juanita and Alicia? And why are the cops threatening Juanita? Well, Emma decides to take the case even though she's never tried a death penalty case before because the the dean, who's tried yeah. several capital cases, um, agrees to to try it with her as first chair. So Dean Munoz asks Emma to do all the investigatory work, write all the necessary motions, and sit as second chair. So she she she's really acting as first chair, but she's yeah. she's doing everything. But the dean will sit with her and provide whatever counseling she needs. She's just afraid to take it on initially because she's never taken the death penalty case on. But she. Since he's back, he's her backup. She she decides to go forward with it, and so she finds 
both Anita and well Juanita um, mm. is reluctant to meet with her because she's afraid of Marcus essentially. So mm. um, Emma finds a safe place where she can meet with Juanita and Alicia privately. Um, Juanita is Lewis's aunt, and she refuses to allow Alicia to testify in the case. Yeah, I know. Yeah, initially she doesn't let her answer any questions at all. Eventually she lets her talk, and um, they she talks um, a little bit about the the um, the, the night, and um, she so they both end up telling and explaining to Emma how. Marcus makes fun of Lewis and how he how he manipulates Lewis by by making fun of him. That yeah, Lewis is a really good guy. Yeah, I mean, Lewis is a really sweet guy. He's artistic. He likes fashion. He likes to draw. And how mm-hmm. you know Marcus has always kind of made fun of him about that and manipulates him, and that Lewis does things for him just to get him to kind of shut up about. About things, and so you know, the, it, Marcus is kind of a kind of bullies. Has always bullied Lewis into getting him to do things. So um, I, I, I don't know. My nephew's autistic, so I sort of identified with Lewis. And you would never know it, though. He does things that are really amazing. But you, when when you have, do something with an autistic kid and you start to put them down, it gets me upset. So, yeah. tell us about yeah. the officer that got killed. That was like, oh, um, God. Yeah, the first the first um, killing, except for um, Antoine and um, Brother yeah. Antoine and Marcus was, and um, Sam was uh, Lionel Boudreaux, and he was uh, Brother Antoine's, like, high school friend. And then they grew up, and they... Um, uh, they sort of did their own thing, but they got together and they formed this uh, community basketball league for high school boys. And they, they, um, his his death was connected to the other murders. I just can't reveal how without revealing the plot. No, we can't. Um, yeah, but they were just good high school friends, and then they got together and they they developed this um, wonderful um, community uh, high school. Um, Basketball league for for kids, so they were just good guys. Well, how, you know, I'm, look, I'm looking at the book because the book's in front of me. So tell us about Flo and why everyone she questions is in danger. And then I have a question about Lewis, and I'm going. I love that kid. I really like him. Yeah, she's a sweetheart. Well, Florence um, was Juanita's best friend, her confidant, and her keeper of records. Yeah. And on Juanita's request, Flo um, held some documents that are important to the operation of Marcus's business. And so Marcus has Flo followed and observes her speaking to Emma. And then it's presumed that from that discussion, since Emma's an attorney, that Emma knows the location of the documents or actually has the documents. Mm. And the documents are something that Marcus and others killed for. So essentially, Flo knows everything Juanita knew. And she's as vulnerable as Juanita was. So, you know, um, so anything Flo touches is, and anyone who talks to Flo is in danger. Anyone who talks to Flo is in in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're seen talking to Flo, you're in, you're in trouble and danger for well, sure. The other question is this. Um, I just read it in the book. Why does Lewis think that he's going to get the death penalty and die? He doesn't have very much faith in anything. <laughs> well, he well Emma had to explain to him that 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 the DA um, had requested that the that the um, death penalty be applied in his case in Louisiana. The um, there's a statute making it mandatory. Mm. to treat juveniles over the age of 15 as adults for certain crimes. I mean, this is really a sad thing, but they do. They treat kids over the Mm. age of 15 as adults for certain crimes, including murder. So if a juvenile charged with the crime of murder is is over 15, and, and they can, they don't have to, it's discretionary, they can request 
death penalty. Now, after I think it's 2008, they cannot request the death penalty for anybody under the age of 18. But mm. in 1994, they could request the death penalty. They cannot anymore. And um, so in 1994, they could request the death penalty. And they did often. Um, so in Lewis's case, this is fiction, of course, um, they mm-hmm. did. And so that's why, you know, he was worried about that. Because in his well, in this fictional yeah. case, they did. And well, I um, would imagine that he would be worried. Imagine anybody would be frightened. And I don't know how yeah. well the guards were treating them either. You get scared when you're in prison like that. Yeah, it's a bad, it's a real bad um, situation. I, I had some um, when I was teaching at Loyola. Um, I had a homelessness clinic, and um, I had some juveniles in in jail, and mm. they were being treated badly by some of the fellow prisoners. And I had to call the sheriff and tell him um, that they were being mistreated by some of their fellow prisoners, and that he needed to take care of them. And so he had to, he transferred them into a, a more protected environment, he, you know, um, because they were just, you know, they were just kids. So, um, yeah, it happened. It happened. So. It's, 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 it's scary. It's really scary. Yeah. I mean, I yes. had a, um, one of the parents of one of my sixth graders, um, was involved in a Brinks robbery. <laughs> really? Yeah, oh, my. Was. Yeah, I, I didn't know. It's like, holy God. Yeah, she was abusive to her two children. And she was at graduation because they let her out when, the, when her son graduated. And she was sitting in the back of the auditorium, and she was, like, you know, punching her hands. And she looked at me, and I go, oh, it's so nice to meet you. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, my God. <laughs> what scary was that this son lived with her for two years and he got killed in a, some oh. kind of accident or something. After all the hard work we put in to protect them, it doesn't always work that oh. way. I know, it's scary. Oh, so, it's sad. So who is Wren and what role does Wren play? Wren is Emma's, um, I think he was the boyfriend. I think yeah. maybe they they got engaged at the end. I'm not sure, but that in in this book, he is her boyfriend, mm. and um, he they met in the first book, um, where he was the deputy sheriff in a small town in Jonesburg, um, Georgia, which is a made up town, fictional town. And well, he was he was the deputy um, sheriff, and helped her solve her first crime, and then he moved to New Orleans to be with her, and um, he was um, involved in this case as um, one of the police officers in the case, and um, but he's her boyfriend. And just a, a kind, um, supportive, um, loving boyfriend. Mm. He's a good, a good guy. Makes up for the book I just read when the character solved the murder and her boyfriend says he met somebody else all the time and he just sort of used it to help her clear his name. That was not very nice. No. I said, oh, I, I knew throughout the entire book that he was full of baloney and that he was using her, and I felt bad. So who is Mama Ruby? Mama Ruby is Lewis's grandmother, and um, Lewis, yeah, Lewis and Marcus's grandmother, and she cooked for everybody on Sundays. Oh, I love that. um, (laughs) Yes, and she used to be a seamstress at D.H. Holmes, and she and Lewis would um, get together and make clothes together sometimes because Lewis likes to do things with Mama Ruby, and she was a seamstress and liked to make clothes, so that's what he kind of learned to do, and he learned to drop, you know, fashionable fashion, you know, that's clothes nice. and things like that from her, and like to cut out patterns with her and make things, and love Mama Ruby. That's when Marcus made fun of him, because he was always doing things like that with Mama Ruby. Um, and she liked to play parlay. She had her, her little... Uh, parlay sheets in the living room and um she was um 
she liked to sew and she liked to uh, play, you know, do her parlay sheets. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with becoming a fashion designer. That's I mean, right. Seriously, she got... how many fashion designers mm-hmm. are there? I mean, really, you can make a ton. I mean, I like Watch right. Project Runway, and half the guys there are gay, and they're so talented that I wanted to email them and say, could you make me something? It's gorgeous. Who cares? Oh, my goodness. Are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, really. One of my really. favorite shows. <laughs> Christian I have a bag that he made. I got it actually before PayPal. Oh, wow. Before uh, PayPal closed, what would, um, what, whatever that's, Payless closed. And, yeah. It was, oh. It's gorgeous, and I just keep it in the closet and stare at it so I don't boot it. Oh. So why does Emma become a victim? How do, what do they go after her? They don't want her to well, solve this, do they? No, they don't want her to solve it. Well, she, well she's on to them, and so yeah. she, um, yeah, so they want to get because she's figured out, you know, who's Who done did what. It? And so, yeah, so they're, so they definitely are after her. Plus, these guys are, are running rampant. I mean, this is, by the way, this is, uh, 1994, um, Mm -hmm. was one of the most corrupt times during, in, in New Orleans and one of the most corrupt times in the New Orleans Police Department. So, the, the things that were going on in the Police Department in New Orleans during this year were pretty crazy, Mm -hmm. too. And so, some of the, some of the corruption that I'm talking about um, in the police department happened in other police departments throughout the country, um, and um, um, some and there were just some there were some crazy things going on in the New Orleans police department too. So um, so there's there's rampant police corruption, you know, mm-hmm. um, and some of these things are not so. Um, they're not as crazy as you think as you think um but but emma um I, of course i you know of course I took poetic license with some of this stuff but um yeah, and just and took advantage of the fact that New Orleans is you know right there on the river and <laughs> you know and, and uh made a a great big drama of all of that, but um it was kind of fun to write about and um, Emma's a fighter, of course. You know she doesn't stay a victim long, and um, it was it was fun to write about. And I I um, enjoyed uh, using. I yeah, you know, I've never been out on the industrial docks before. I knew they were there, and I I did some litigation about those docks before, but I'd never actually walked on them. And so I used Google Maps to actually, and I couldn't go. I was going to visit. But I couldn't visit so because of COVID. So I took Google Maps and I literally walked down there and ran around oh, nice. and looked and everything with the Google Maps. And I could tell what the wharfs were made out of. I didn't know if they were wood or concrete. And I could tell they were concrete but by using Google Maps. Isn't that cool? I, you so know something? Was, I grew up in the South Bronx and I wanted to know what my old house looked like. So I looked up Google Maps, and I said, oh, my God, it hasn't changed. The neighborhood got worse. It's dangerous. It was dangerous back then, but it looked the same, except for the fact that we lived over a store. So there was a restaurant, a new restaurant. There used to be a beauty parlor. There used to be a laundromat, but it's different. It's like, yeah, Google Maps is so cool. You know, you it wonder. Is. It, it is, because you can learn so much. So yeah. tell, us about, tell us about her twins, and why did you add the dogs and... My ne- I haven't seen my, 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 my Bella, my brother's dog, in a while. So when they walk her, they make her get on the phone and bark at me so that she knows it's me. No, I'm serious. Oh, the, 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 um, the boys are, you know, just typical 12-year-olds. They, they get in trouble, of course. They don't always listen. They sneak out on the roof, even though Emma is constantly telling them not to. And I got that from my daughter, who literally, we were in a three-story place, in New Orleans, mm. she would sneak out of her bathroom window and go scanning on the roof all the time. And I was always getting after her about it. I never knew anybody who would get out on a roof. Oh, yeah, they do. They do in Manhattan. They do in the city. Oh, my they do. God. They do in the city. <laughs> oh you my never God. know. And, uh, 
so you, so I I put that in there, and then um, the okay they were always on the roof and doing that kind of thing, smart, reluctant to do homework, la la, just like little boys. But the dogs, I got the dogs because I got dogs in New Orleans too, mm-hmm. um, as protection. But then they become, of course, a part of the family. And, of course, then the dogs got out on the roof, too. And I had dogs that got out on my roof, too. The dogs got out on my roof, too. Um, crazy things. But, um, it, you know, dogs just kind of add something to a family. And you think you get them for protection. And, no, you just have a couple of furry children. So, um, so I just added them. And they became part of the family. And, of course, then in this story, they actually end up, you know, um, entering into a, a situation where they rescue um, Emma from a, a situation as well with the bad guy. So that that's a little unusual. But um, from now on, they're just going to be part of the family. So... I think that's but so I, cool, but I, I, I emailed, I private messaged Vincent Zandrew, who's the New York Times, everybody knows Vincent, and he's writing a book called The Teacher. He finished it, so I private messaged him. I said, I think it's about time you put me your novel as Bump Daddy Bad, since I do you all these favors and read your books in five minutes and review them <laughs> and, or, and interview you. So I'm hoping that he makes me a character in his book, because I want to be bad. I don't know why. <laughs> it's, I mean, as an educator, I've never done anything wrong, and as a child, I never got in trouble. My mother gave you the Ruthie look, and you knew you were dead. Forget it. There was no way in hell, no way that you were going to ever, ever, ever do anything bad, ever. So, <laughs> this is a book about a child, the deception, and he, he's afraid to tell, we're not going to tell it, the truth about what happened that night. How come he's so afraid to admit what really happened? We're not going to tell everybody what really happened, but what really happened. Well, well he's, he is, you know, the weak link. I mean, he's scared to death of, of Marcus. And, yeah. um, and this is the same situation that I encountered with the, the, with the, with the 14-year-old real-life kid. Um, you know, you see that sort of struggle repeat itself over and over in all walks of life. So there are powers. Their power struggles, and the very the very poor have no representation in these kind of power struggles, no voice. In the actual case that that I had, the a young man was set up by his brother to take the rap for the murder, and in 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 this real case I had, and um, in that case. Um, the plan was for him to serve. They do it. I mean, they, this this happens all the time. The yeah, plan was I know. to serve the, the, the real time. The real kid served time in juvenile, and then they emerge the hero from the juvenile detention center at age twenty one, and no one has to serve time in real the real adult prison system typically, and so that's kind of why I I wrote the one of the reasons I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but in Lewis's case, it kind of backfired because he ended up in the adult system. And, you know, he was intimidated by Marcus completely to not tell the truth. Mm. Um, just totally, absolutely, you do not tell what, ha- what really went down. You know, he's not going to. Um, and, I mean, he's been conditioned his whole life to follow suit to not you know to support marcus to do what marcus said i mean he had intimidated him mm. his whole life you know that was what he was always kind of trained to do so there's he, always he one person in the family that intimidates everyone that's what's really scary well, there is there's always right. somebody that somebody's afraid of or when I was growing up, I was, you know, my, my mother said, you know, let it, I'll, I'll answer for you. Until finally, when I was in the seventh grade, the, principal, the teacher said, she gets a big enough mouth, she can answer for herself in a, in a respectful way. And I had an aunt that was like that. She would intimidate everybody, and if you didn't do what she said, Lord help you. And she was the one that told me, it's okay to speak up as long as you don't do it in a disrespectful way. I mean, somebody like Marcus would scare the daylights out of most people. So yet, there's right. another side to him. He does he does an amount of good, doesn't he? 
He doesn't do all bad. He does. Well, the thing that he's the head of a gang. I mean, the gang yeah. is big. It's a large gang. So it's not just that he's in this family, that Lewis is a part of the immediate family, but he's also a part, you know, a gang. So yeah. it's, he's, Marcus has got a lot of influence, but in in the family itself, Marcus provides the food for the family. He yeah. loves his grandmother. He loves his family. The kids in the family, the Lewises and the and the Dwaynes and the Georges, they don't sell the. He don't. Well, really, because of Juanita, but yeah. they don't sell the drugs. They do little. They do little things. They do little drop offs and things like that of um, um, payoffs, but they don't. They do not touch the drugs. They do not sell the drugs. And and um, it, but he but he he family is important to Marcus and his grandmother is important to him and he doesn't disrespect her by having drugs in the house in the grandmother's house. So well, before that's before cool. I for, before I forget <laughs> Thursday we have two authors here. They're going to talk about an anthology. It says New York, give us your best or your worst. It's interesting. On the fourth, we have Marilyn Levinson, Death on the Shelf. On the second, we have a panel show of five authors. We're going to talk about how you review a book and rate it and what their criteria is and what happens when you don't like the book. Do you write something back or do you toss it? I'm curious to know what other people do. On the ninth, Silence in the Library. On the 11th, this is exciting. In honor of Veterans Day, John Land is going to be talking about a book that he wrote with somebody, Walk in the Mud, and it's about a Navy SEAL, but basically what he writes at the end of every chapter is stuff that people can understand when they're dealing with difficult situations. Okay, on the 17th, we have Dick Belsky, who's Dana Perry, Silent Island. On the uh, 15th, we have the author of One Mile Show, i got a lot of them. On the 18th, another panel. We're going to talk about the dark side of the novel. It's really scary. And there's a whole lot more coming in the end of November and December. And January, we have maybe one more date left. That's it, people. I'm gone. So so tell us what Flo gave Emma, and why was she more of a target as a result? I couldn't understand that, that the first part of the question. What did Flo give to Emma that caused her to be more of a target? Oh, um, well, that that was the um, mm. all of the that those were some important documents. So I can't really go into. Oh, don't the, say that. Okay, we're going to leave that out. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, the question that I added was, how did you come up with the title redemption? Because that word has a lot of multiple meanings. I'm a reading specialist, so I do know these things. Well, the yeah, the redemption really refers to the the sort of why I, I wrote the book. I wanted um, to rewrite what happened to the original case that I had, and in the original mm-hmm. case, um, the 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 boy, uh, the fourteen year old, um, went to the um, uh, juvenile detention center and ended up um, uh, serving time in the and in, in juvenile court in in the juvenile detention center, and um, I um, was so frustrated by that situation that I that I wanted to write a book where um, we actually resolve the case in a way that um, was fair and where the truth came out. And so that's why I called it the redemption, where the boy was actually redeemed and the truth came out and he actually had a chance to show who he was and what happened in the situation. And so that's um, why I called it the redemption. Um, in, the, in the real case, um, the um, we showed the judge. We we tried it in juvenile court, which has no jury. We tried it in front of a um, juvenile uh, judge, and we showed that the um, um, there were two shooters. We proved there were two shooters. We had we put on mm. um, pathologists 
and other expert witnesses, and we um, put on all kind of evidence to show that the, the the juvenile could not have shot the man at issue. There were there was more than one shooter, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. We showed where the guy was where, where the kid was standing, and et cetera, and. Um, and the judge ruled that he shot the man anyway. So afterwards, I went and talked to the judge, and I said, you know, Your Honor, I don't understand how you could have ruled the way that you did. And he said, well, the kid will be better off serving time in juvenile in the juvenile detention center and being away from his family. And mm. I thought, well, that just doesn't, that doesn't seem fair for him to make that kind of a judgment. Um, and, but he did. And, um, so, you know, I, he just didn't, he said his family's always in trouble. He needs to be away from his family and la, 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 la. And I can say this today because that particular judge is dead. So it doesn't matter what I say. Um, so I, I, I I guess he prejudged him by his family and didn't look, look at judging him for himself. That's scary. and well, he didn't make a judgment based on the facts. That's what I'm saying too. Yeah. Yeah, and so I I wanted to rewrite the or, you know rewrite the situation and and um and base it on and basically you know the story on what would happen if somebody were able to prove the facts and I just wanted mm-hmm. to you know rewrite it and and call it the redemption and let let the story shine a little bit. It was just unfortunate. It was just a sad, unfortunate case. So A lot of the cases are sad and unfortunate. You read them, listen to the news, and, you know, I watched the, the program Suicide, Murder, or Accident, or Snapped, or all those, and last night I was watching, when my husband was watching one, I said, she's guilty. And they knew that the mother and the daughter set up the murder of her brother because they wanted the property. And what bothered me was the daughter wound up serving like almost no time and the mother got away with it. I said, how did they not know that she's guilty? You could tell by the way she was, you know, doing I think I read enough murders that I could probably write one. Who knows? Uh, so yeah. how did you tie all the murders together? And how did you create, without giving it away, the final scenes that gave me a heart-stopping nervous breakdown here? <laughs> well, the, all the murders are tied to the first two. They're all connected. I can't really go into. Um, no, don't tell everybody them, that. Yeah, they're all tied. To, they're all literally tied to the first two. Um, and the final scenes, like I told you, that the 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 worst scene I created by using Google Maps, and um, the the scene, the final scene at the St. Santa Claus Law School. I literally, mm. I just imagined my old my old office at Loyola mm. Law School, um, which is on the first floor. Unlike most professors' offices, are on the third floor. Mm. But my my office when I was there was on the first floor, which is pretty unusual. And um, but it made the whole story work really well. Um, for all of that stuff to take place on the first floor. And, um, you know, because it would be hard to have everything happen that happened happen on the third floor. Um, so it worked really well on the first floor, and it was um, it, it it worked out really well. So um, it was easy for me to imagine all that stuff since I worked on the first floor. So, How did you create the my, cover of the book? Because that's, that's where the logs are. That's where the scene is. How did you create that cover? That's gorgeous. That's perfect. Isn't that... Well, I have a friend who's an architect. Again, I couldn't I couldn't drive or fly to New Orleans. So I have a friend that's an architect there. And thank goodness his name is Brian Swan. And he, um, he took some photographs for me. So um, that is New Orleans, and it's a beautiful photograph. He's very talented. He also took my uh, photograph from my third book, which I'm working on now. Um, so he's he's just very. I'm very lucky that Ryan takes some time and takes these photographs for me. So, well, what's next for Emma? And what's your third book? And when am I getting good? And when are you coming out? It's oh, coming out in here. June of 2022, and the name of oh, the good. third book is Sanctuary. 
Yeah, and oh, nice. it's in New Orleans. Yeah, she Emma agrees to represent a former homeless client, another homeless girl, and um, she's accused of killing a leader of a cult. Um, Ooh. So, this, yeah, this murder weapon is found in her room, but she insists she's innocent, and um, as soon as she makes bail, she runs away, which causes, you know, Emma great grief. Um, so she she begins her investigation, and hidden secrets emerge, and a little dangerous cat and mouse game ensues as Emma pursues the case. So it's going to be quite the intrigue. So what are you, um, who are you bringing back editing. in this one? Are you bringing back anybody from book two in book three? Well, um, Emma, of course, and Wren, and the twins, and the doggies. Um, and that's it so far. Yeah, that's it. Well, what happens to Alicia? I like her. What happens to her at well, the end? At the end, she she gets her scholarship, and she um, instead of going to the school in New Orleans, she goes to um, a school in a little southern parish which is a boarding school where she's going to be a little bit more protected and safer, um, kind of away from the gang. Um, So she's going to be, you know, in a more protected area. What about, are you going to do students in the next book too to to help them with the case or are you going to do it differently this time? Am I going to do what now? Are you going to have student? students assist her, like, oh. like Melissa? Well, Melissa screwed up, but that's just, I mean, Lauren screwed up. Like uh, La- Melissa and Josh, are you going to have students again help with the case of witnessing and stuff like that? Because I thought that was really cool. I'm not. I'm not going to have them in the third case. I thought I'd change that. Um, I might use students mm-hmm. on and off. Um, this in the third the third book, I did not use students. Um so I, I thought, you know, I would, I would use them periodically, not every time. So see what you think about the third book, if you like them without students this time. Well, I didn't so, read the, little... the first one, and this is really interesting. And yours is what I get eye strain a lot because I read things too fast. Yeah, I bet you do. I bet you do. It's, it's horrible, <laughs> I know. I mean, just the fact that. No, my mother my mother insisted that I read ten books a week and take notes on them, which is explains oh. why when I read a review a book, people I underline, cross out, and circle. So by the time I read the book, I have it photographed in my brain. So I know. Wow. And in, your, in your case, I have like pages, numbers, page numbers as to where I wanted to go back when I wrote the review. This is like a it's hilarious. Wow. So I did repost your review on Just Reviews this morning because I wanted everybody to read it and see it and I posted it back on Facebook and I don't know what's wrong with Lincoln and Tate they're not happy and I posted it on Twitter so everybody has it I know the review is posted on Amazon for five stars because that was the most they would let me give it no I'm serious oh that's um, great that's great I haven't Thank been giving so five stars I mean the one that I, I finished today I won't say the name of it when I put it on on Amazon it's going to be four and that's pushing it on some cases um, yeah. I have a I have a memoir that's nine thousand pages that I'm going to read. I have one about the Holocaust, and I have to think about it because those are the kind of books I'm not crazy about reading. They're very sad because my grandmother was in a yeah. in a Polish concentration camp. So oh. this yeah, so it, it's 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 sad. So before we go, where can we find out more about you and your books? And are you going to do another tour with Cheryl and and them with partners? Yes, and I am. I well, am. you're gonna have I'm to gonna let me know it. so I can put you in my schedule because I have put, I just booked two for April, and one for May. I don't know why I'm so popular, but I am. And okay. Yeah, well, I can't I believe it. It's like unbelievable. Yeah. And Cheryl, yeah, you know, what, Gina asked me for something for somebody that's on a tour this month, and I can't do it till January. Believe it or not. Oh so gosh. Well, my book comes out in June, so I will let you know. And okay. you can you can find me at www.cltolbert.com. 
And as soon as you get the book, even if it's early, I mean, I'm um, I'm reading something that I'm going to start something that's for April, because I like to get okay. my interviews done. I like to get things done fast and early, and then I have, of course, I have the okay. questions to remind me. What did you read? Oh my God! So if if Emma were to talk to people, one question before we go: What would she tell people that want to become lawyers and dealing with murder cases? Would she do this again? She's going to do it again, isn't she? Murder. Yes. Yes. It's 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 difficult. I mean, and I I tell you something. After what happened, I lost sort of lost my faith in the legal profession in a lot of respects. And I often wonder: Does a judge sometimes side with one side over the other for some reason? In a case, well, they're not supposed to, but but yeah, they, they do, like, though. often like they often like one lawyer better than another. I think. Yeah. Um And they get to know lawyers, and they get to trust mm-hmm. lawyers. And sometimes they trust both lawyers, but mm-hmm. they they try to be. I think a good judge tries to be impartial, and they try to listen to both sides. And if 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 one if one lawyer isn't particularly good, that judge is going to try to help that other side and be fair and impartial and do his best. I mean, a good a good judge is going to even out the situation. You know what I mean? Mm. He's not going to let you know. He's not going to let the um, the other side lose just because they have a bad lawyer. You know, he's going to try to you know, even out the the justice. Um, well, I wish they would do that with my problem, but they're not. What can I say? But then they don't always, that doesn't always happen, but, um, you know, a good a good judge is a good thing, let me just tell you. Um, sometimes I've seen judges, that, you know, they aren't that great, and, and the loudest person wins. <laughs> I have seen that situation before. But um, that's not always the case. That's rare, you know. Well, before I um, before I end, I say this at the end of every single one of my shows now, because unfortunately, there's a lot of meanness in the world, and a lot of whatever in the world. And oh well, this doesn't look so good. We just came back a test result. I'm not happy about it. Well, live. Um, everybody in the world would do a kindness to someone, say something nice and be kind and do something wonderful for somebody else, maybe the virus would take a hike and leave and realize it's the only negative thing in the world. It's my new thing. I just I do something nice for everybody. I love doing the shows, and it's fun. And yesterday, this girl walked into uh, the bakery, and I told her her hair looked great. It was really pretty. It was magenta. And nice. I don't know why the people that walk around, they don't say hello. They're very nasty. And I don't like it, and I don't have time for nasty. But I want to thank you so much. Uh, question, do you do panels based on law and I, stuff I, like that? I do. Uh, I have a podcast, and I would love to. And I do pan. I was asked to be on a panel at the BoucherCon uh, convention this um, August, and the convention was canceled. So I would love to do panels, yeah. Okay, then I'll have to remember that in January because I have your email, I can tell you. I do panel shows on just about anything. And on November 18th, we were talking about the dark side of a scary character. So thank you oh. so much. The rain is letting well, thank up. you. Thank you so much. Everybody have a beautiful, sparkling day, and bye. Thank you, Brian. Bye.